A very pleasant Sunday morning to each and every one of you. Thanks for joining us here on www.godsredeemed.org. This is the website of the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ, located here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We'd love to have you join us for worship services at 1030 here in, uh, on 2091 Pitts Lane in Murfreesboro. There are instructions for attending our services uh, here on the website. We also have a midweek Bible study uh, at 7 each week, and the instructions are the same for attending those uh, studies, and we'd be glad to have you. We are looking in the book of 1 Corinthians. Today we're in chapter 11. We're going to be talking about several things today. Uh, first, we're going to talk about the submission of women, and this is the passage that Many people for years and years and years have gone to uh, find uh, the commandment to wear the veil. Unfortunately, as we study, we're going to see there is no commandment to wear the veil, uh, but rather this was a tradition. And so we're going to ask uh, the questions as we go along and see what Paul had to say to refresh our memories and to remind ourselves of the difference between commandment uh, and following the traditions of men uh, as doctrines. We're also going to look at the Lord's Supper. There were many things that had gone wrong at uh, Corinth. Uh, they had misconstrued many things. They had taken things out of context, uh, and they simply had forgotten many of the things that Paul had taught them. One of the things was the Lord's Supper. It was a supper not of remembrance, but of disorder, of selfishness and pride. And it simply was not what Christ had ordained. And so he's going in this chapter to uh, set the Corinthians straight on what Christ expects in his public worship uh, concerning submission of women and the Lord's Supper. Now, submission of women, just the title, irritates some people, and I hope it doesn't irritate you. I hope you're here searching for the truth, and if anything I say is uh, a problem or anything is uh, not what the Scripture says, uh, then again, I, I ask you, you'll be my friend. Point those things out to me that I might not be lost or lead others uh, to be lost either. So let's begin the study uh, a review of uh, last week's study in chapters 9 and 10. It'll be rather quick. Uh, Paul's life is presented in uh, chapter 9 as a continuation of chapter 8, where he says sometimes Christians have to give up some of the things they're free to do in order to keep a, a weaker brother or sister from stumbling, uh, violating their conscience, and therefore any. He said he had a right to support while preaching, as well as other preachers have a right, and many of them had been supported uh, while they preached the gospel there at Corinth. He mentioned uh, several examples in uh, verses 7 through 14 of the preacher's right to support as he labors among a congregation. Uh, he goes back to the Old Testament uh, there in chapter 9 and talks about the ox that walked around this uh, heavy stone that uh, threshed out the wheat 
and every now and then he would dip down and eat some, and he was entitled to that. And so was a preacher. The preacher is laboring uh, for the flock. He's working uh, for them as a servant. Uh, but Paul decided he was going to forego uh, his freedom to be supported because he said, though I be free from all men, yet I made myself a servant to all that I might gain the more. And he remembers his experience on the Damascus road with Jesus. And Jesus had sent him after his baptism uh, to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. And that was his desire to be a servant of Christ and a servant to those who uh, would hear him as he preached and who would see him as they looked at his example. And he also talked uh, in the latter part of that chapter that self-denial is a condition for us as well if we want to be saved. And he used two examples, the runner who's preparing for the Olympic Games and also the boxer who's preparing for a match. Uh, they both uh, sacrificed, certain, sacrificed certain foods. Uh, they sacrificed time. They sacrificed uh, free time. Uh, sometimes uh, they can't go certain places. They have to stay in the training mode. And, and it affected their mind and body and their strength, and that's what they needed to win the prize. Aren't we trying to win the prize? And so sometimes we have to deny ourselves. He gave the example of Israel of old, just after they had been uh, released from bondage by God. Uh, they'd crossed the Red Sea, this, this huge sea, and I've seen the Red Sea. It is a wide, deep uh, sea capable of carrying large uh, ships today, <coughs> aircraft carriers and and you can look to the horizon and not see the, uh, the end of the sea. And they went through this and they saw God and they saw God's power in many things. But shortly after they crossed the Red Sea on their way to the promised land, uh, they fell back into idolatry. And they had enjoyed special blessings. They were God's people. God had fed them manna, Paul mentioned. They had received the wonderful attention of God, and he had freed them from bondage. He had give, promised them the promised land, but many of them never saw it, only two. Most of Israel fell into sin, and you read the accounts there in uh, Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, and go on through to the final uh, captivity. They did not listen, and they did not follow God's instructions. And so here Paul reminds them, just as he told them to flee adultery, uh, flee fornication, uh, flee idolatry, which is closely associated with fornication. Get that out of your system, because one of the things that was addressed in this question uh, that was written to Paul from Corinth was, is it okay to go into the temples on these days when they had uh, uh, public services uh, that you could go in and uh, get some of the meat that was sacrificed or partake of that sort of thing, is that okay? And he talked about uh, some examples of if you partake in that, you are part of it and you partake of it all. 
Well, the Lord's Supper there first is mentioned that we gather together as a congregation and we participate in the Lord's Supper with Christ and we all partake of the cup. We all partake of the bread. We all partake in remembering Jesus Christ. He mentioned the Jewish feasts that uh, those who participated in those and brought sacrifices, uh, those sacrifices were not all consumed. Uh, that which was left was uh, divided up between the priests and the Levites and those who had brought the sacrifices. And they partook. They all partook of these feasts. And, of course, the Gentiles. If you went into a, a temple and someone sees you, it's the same as you worshiping. You give that impression uh, and whether you worship a real God or not, which is what they're saying, well, in idolatry, we don't really worship a God because there's only one true God. But your heart leads you into that. And God says, have nothing to do with it. Don't have anything to do with going into an idolatrous temple. And then he applied, uh, applied further applications to what he talked about summing it all up, that eating meat sacrificed to idols in one's home. If you bought that at the marketplace, then that's fine. Go ahead and eat that. Or if someone uh, gave that to you, as long as it's given or eaten with thanksgiving and contentment, uh, go ahead and eat it. But now the idea of eating meat sacrificed to an idol in another home, in another's home, well, if you go into someone's house and they got bread and vegetables and cornbread and, and uh, tomatoes on the uh, table, uh, don't ask, where'd this meat come from? Because if they say, well, it was uh, from the temple, it was offered as a sacrifice, he said, don't eat it. Because what you'll do is you, you're okaying that for the person giving you that meal. So he says, don't ask where it came from. But if you do ask, or if someone comes to your house and asks, uh, and it violates their conscience, take the meat off the table. Don't eat it. Withhold yourself. And so with that, let's go into today's lesson. We're going to be looking again, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And by way of introduction, we can group chapters 11 through 14 together by... Uh, talking about these three things, the subjection of women, the Lord's Supper, and spiritual gifts. All three of those things were causing problems in the church. They were contributing to this great division that they had within the church of Corinth. But in doing so, they were also uh, causing the worship of God to be profaned. It was not as it should. And so Paul uh, looking here in chapter 11 is setting them straight on these things. And then, Lord willing, next week as we go into uh, chapter 12, we'll be talking about the spiritual gifts if God gives us uh, that day. So just looking at what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about some controversial things to some people. Uh, even some people in the church, particularly the subjection of the women, uh, which deals with wearing of the veil and uh, their subjection. So let's begin uh, with that one. We're going to be looking at the order of subjection. And yes, 
There is an order. Uh, and the women were to be in subjection uh, in, in the congregation. And what was happening here, as you read the first few verses, there is that many of the women who had been given spiritual gifts uh, were not wearing their veil, whereas uh, every other day, except for the first day of the week, they had worn the veil as a tradition to show their subjection to uh, their husbands. And Paul begins this letter by uh, giving them a commendation because they adhered to the traditions handed down to them in most of the ordinances. That's in verse 2. And I like the way Paul uh, gives them an expression that always reminds me, or a commendation, it always reminds me of the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and chapters 3. As God looks at each of the churches, especially those who were lacking and those who were deeply lacking, Christ began telling them what they were doing good. And I think that's important for us as Christians. When we see a brother in sin or a sister and we want to go to them and to help them, we ought to start out on a positive note and commend them for the things that they are doing good. Sometimes we want to go and just tear into them and say, wow, I didn't know you behaved this way. And that's horrible, and you should know better, and, and I wish you'd stop, and this and that. But we ought to start by commending them. If there's anything good to be commended, we ought to say, you're doing this well, and I like the way you do this. But what do you think about doing this? And Paul here begins that. He gets their attention by saying, I'm glad you're uh, adhering to these traditions that were handed down uh, in these ordinances, not laws, but traditions and ordinances. And so having uh, praised them, he turns to the problem that needs to uh, be corrected, and that is the behavior of women in the assemblies uh, there at Corinth. What was occurring at Corinth is not really easy to understand, but as we look at this chapter, some, some women were coming to worship without a veil. Now, the veil is that covering over the head that they, they wore, and you can see uh, pictures of many statues and uh, uh, paintings and descriptions of, of people. Uh, the hood that we might call it today was also called a veil. And then some of these women uh, were speaking under divine inspiration, that is, they had a a spiritual gift, but they uh, didn't have a veil. And so to correct these problems, Paul uh, lays down the fundamental principle of women's subjection. And he said, first of all, there's divine order in creation. And there is. Have you ever looked at the order of creation? How uh, even the seen and the unseen all come together in order, uh, there is daylight and there's nighttime. There's a season to plant and there's a season to reap. And as we look at that uh, passage from Solomon in Ecclesiastes, uh, and perhaps you remember the song by Pete Seeger, uh, there is a time to everything. There is an order to everything. And that order uh, is simply this. God the Father is above all. Secondly, God the Son, who 
uh, is under the Father. Thirdly, man who is under Christ. And finally, woman. As we look at the word head uh, in Greek, uh, I'm not good at Greek, but it's K-E-P-H-A-L-E, kephale. And it refers to the physical part of the body known as the head. And then in a metaphorical sense, we might say it's used to uh, mean supreme or chief or uh, one who is prominent. And so this text varies between the literal and that which is a metaphor. And it uses this word, uh, kephale. And so we have to see what's being discussed in each version. Other passages teach uh, that the subjection of women is unto man. In Ephesians 5, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her uh, so that he might present her in splendor. Uh, we can also look at 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 5. Likewise, husbands, uh, wives rather. Let me start that over again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that uh, even if some don't obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. And so there's this idea of the orderliness in marriage, that the husband is the head. And the wife, who was made for man uh, as a suitable help, uh, is subjective uh, to man. The second thing Paul says is that there is order in worship, and there has to be order in worship. Now, you may go to a congregation that uh, when the worship begins, you have announcements at the beginning, and you may have... Uh, a worship service where the announcements are made at the end. You might attend a congregation and worship where the Lord's Supper is uh, presented after one or two songs, or you may attend a congregation where the Lord's Supper is uh, served at the end. But there is order in the worship. It doesn't have to be the same way every Sunday, but there is an order. Uh, there is one man speaking as a teacher. There is one man speaking as a preacher. Now there can be people in a class who ask questions, both men and women, but it has to be done orderly. The church at Corinth's worship was not, by any stretch of the imagination, orderly. And what this passage is talking about is praying or prophesying man or woman. Uh, the phrase describes a person with reference to what he's doing. And so if he's prophesying, he's proclaiming a divine revelation. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> if he's praying, it refers to the act of offering a prayer. And in some contexts, it refers to the prayer being offered uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, over in chapter 14 and verse 15, uh, there uh, it says, uh, what am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I'll sing with praise, uh, praise with my spirit, but I'll sing with my spirit or my mind, pardon me, also. So yes, when we pray, uh, it's not our position, whether kneeling or standing, that matters. It is our hearts and our spirit 
when we sing, it's not just knowing the words or knowing the notes and singing harmony. It's understanding the words and having the right spirit. And so for this reason, some limit these actions uh, to be done uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The rule that was laid down was that the praying or prophesying uh, man should not have his physical head covered uh, because it would dishonor his head, Jesus. And in contrast, the, woman, uh, the praying or prophesying woman who did that should have her head covered to pray uncovered, uh, dishonored her head. Why? Because it was a tradition uh, that they had observed other days of the week, and here they were coming together on the first day of the week, uh, but yet they were leaving their veils off and not wearing them in submission. And so Paul is uh, helping us understand that this passage acknowledged that whatever man was doing through the rest of the week with his head uncovered, he needed to have it uncovered uh, here in uh, the assembly. And the woman was also uh, to, uh, if she was submissive for the rest of the week, she was to be submissive on Sunday too. Now, some people have taken this out of context and said, well, if that's so, then as long as the woman had the covering on her head, uh, she could speak in the assembly and she could address it even if she was covered. Uh, and they also take uh, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 34 for that. And uh, that's simply not what he's saying. The reason that women are to be covered is given in verses 5 through 16. Paul gives several reasons why women should be covered. And, and uh, these arguments, again, are appealing to custom, custom, tradition, rather than divine commandment. It's as if she were shaven, he says in verses 5 and 6. For a woman to be uncovered was as disgraceful as if she were shaven. When we look at the Old Testament uh, and the examples of uh, being shaven, we see in Leviticus 13 the example there of shaving the leprous uh, one, uh, those having contact with the dead in Numbers 6 and, and verse 9. Nazarites, number 6 again, the woman who was taken captive and one desired to uh, have her for his wife in Deuteronomy 21 uh, were shaved. Uh, there's nothing in the Old Testament, however, to tell us what a woman having her head shaved meant. That had to be learned from the society in which one lived. And there were occasions throughout history uh, where a woman with a shaved head and this does not pertain to those who have medical problems, uh, those who uh, have cancer, uh, or those uh, in any other situation where they can't help it. Uh, society has always frowned on those with shaven heads, particularly the female, uh, especially the female. I can remember uh, seeing newsreels and uh, accounts after World War II of the women uh, who collaborated with German soldiers in France uh, were publicly shorn, uh, and it was a disgrace. And so Paul's comments clearly indicate that being shaven was disgraceful, but beyond that, I can't tell you uh, 
what other reasons uh, were implied there because it was uh, done by tradition. And so in verses 7 and 9, Paul says it's to show her place in the order of creation. Man should not cover his head because he's in the image of God. Going back to uh, verse 7, but looking at its uh, insinuation, going back to Genesis 1 and verse 26, that God created man and created man in his image, and he is uh, the glory of God and God's creation. He's made just a little lower than the angels. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 and Psalms 8, as David said. But the woman, she's the glory of man. Uh, the woman reflects whatever glory her maid attains. If he's the king, uh, she's the queen. Uh, she reflects the status of her husband. Man is not derived from the woman. The woman came from the man in verse 8. She was taken from the rib after Adam was put into a deep sleep, and God made this wonderful help for man. Uh, man wasn't created for woman. If you look at that order of creation, woman was created for the man, verse 9 of chapter 11. And so Eve was created to be a, a suitable helper for Adam, and creation, uh, therefore, in its simplicity, uh, shows that the woman's place is to be submissive to a man. Now, ladies, we're not uh, using submissive uh, to replace uh, slave. Woman is by no means to be a slave. She's to be loved and adored. And if you read uh, Proverbs, the 31st uh, chapter, uh, about that wonderful woman whom the husband looked up to, and she did so much to provide for the family, but yet she was still submissive as Sarah was to Abram, which Abraham, which was used as an example last week. But here in the Corinthian society, the veil was a visible sign uh, in society that the woman had accepted her place of submission to her husband and to man. Thirdly, he says, it's because of the angels. Another reason that women should have power on their head is because of the angels. That power on their head, they should have the veil on because of their head. Now, some commentators say this refers back to Genesis 6, verses 1 and 2, where the sons of man uh, intermarried with the sons of God. And that's been taken out of context to imply angels, but it doesn't apply to angels because angels have no uh, ability to do that. Uh, they're not given in marriage. Uh, they don't uh, take on husbands of mortals. But it's uh, better understood when we go to Second Peter 2 and verse 4. There Peter says, For if God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept unto judgment. And he's telling us that we need to watch out for ourselves. Uh, Jude 6, the angels who didn't stay with their own position of authority, they left their proper dwelling. They're kept in change. chains. Well, what, why are they kept in chains? Because they uh, abused the authority and their submission. They, the angels left their place of order. They rebelled against God, and therefore they're waiting to be judged. 
male and female, the fourth uh, point that Paul says is we're interdependent, verses 12 through 13. And so he's trying, he's reputing, not trying, he's reputing this feeling of male superiority. And he, he reminds the church at Corinth that neither of us could do without the other. I know I think about my wife and all that she does uh, and has done for 44 years, uh, caring for the children and uh, sitting with me and studying with me uh, and doing what she can to encourage. I, I just can't think of a time uh, without her. Uh, and I hope it doesn't come, but it will one day. But we depend on each other. It's just, uh, I think I've heard a lot of sermons on why Eve was taken from Adam's rib. It's close to the heart. And yes, women are close to our hearts. He states uh, uh, that, that that's where the woman came from. And it was for Adam. And they were to be uh, helps suitable uh, to man. His fifth point is that it's an appeal to decorum. It's an appeal uh, to order and uh, simplicity of the worship service, where things are in order. He asked the Corinthians to judge in yourselves whether or not a woman should be covered. It's an appeal to propriety and custom. He also appealed uh, to nature. And he looks in verse 14 and 15 at nature, but it's not the nature that uh, we may think of. That is, well, he's a boy because he's got short hair and she's a girl because she's got long hair. Uh, the word used here again in Greek is P-H-U-S-I-S, phusis. And it can refer to what one knows uh, innately, uh, natural endowment or condition, or to what one has uh, has learned through society or by habit. It's an appeal to habit, and certainly they uh, had been holding on to these traditions of wearing this veil. Uh, there have been a lot of people throughout all of history where the men uh, have had long hair. You look at the American Indian, uh, look at some of the paintings of uh, Columbus and and other people, uh, they wore wigs, and it was a, a fashion statement. It was a tradition. It was something that was not a uh, commandment, uh, but it was simply something that they observed over uh, the years in society. Uh, for a man to wear long hair in those days, uh, the Church of Corinth, it was shameful, but a long hair was her glory. Even in the natural order, the woman's head uh, shows that the woman's head should be covered. Paul concludes by exhorting the contentious to respect the customs that prevail at Corinth and in churches of Christ there. And so these five arguments, he, these next five arguments, he uses to demonstrate that this covering was a custom and not divine law. First, he called it a custom in verse 16. In John 18 and verse 39, uh, here Jesus said, but you have a custom, or not Jesus said, rather at Jesus' uh, trial, 
Pilate said, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So who do you want me to release, Barnabas or Jesus? The Jews had customs, and uh, if you've been studying with us on Wednesday, or Sunday morning, uh, as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount looks at things that they had taken out of context as being law that were never written in the law. They were oral uh, traditions that had been given by rabbis and judges. And even in the trial of Jesus, they used these traditions. wasn't a law that he should release one man, but it was a tradition. The second thing uh, that he does, he appealed to them to judge in themselves what's proper. Look at what order is. Are you orderly? Are things being done uh, that are right and uh, decent? And he equated uh, being unveiled with being shaven back in verse 5 and 6. It was a shame for them to come into the assembly uh, without their veil because they had shown submission to their man. And when we come into uh, worship, we are submitting ourselves unto Christ, unto God. And the veil symbolized the woman's subjection. It was simply a symbol. It was a tradition. Her heart was what was in, to be in subjection. And their wearing a veil wouldn't be so in every society. There were other societies where uh, the veil wouldn't mean a thing. It was just an outward symbol. And again, using this uh, word phusis, uh, a long-established habit, uh, it could be learned from nature, and therefore that habit had been done of, of wearing the long hair, the short hair. But when it came to wearing the veil, it was a tradition to show submissiveness of the wife to the husband. And it demonstrates that the veil was indeed a custom. I don't think you'll find uh, a command anywhere in God's scripture that says you must put your veil on before you enter the doors of service or before the service begins. What he was saying is, since you wear this veil for the rest of the week, uh, don't think that because you have miraculous spiritual gifts, you can lay it aside when you come into worship. And those who take the position that you should wear a veil because of divine law, uh, you've uh, gotten this mistaken. And the law has uh, of tradition has been twisted into law, uh, the same as washing of feet. And there are many today who believe that each other's feet should be washed uh, as a divine law, as Christ gave it as an example uh, and used it also often to correct those of their traditions uh, to make a point. Uh, the veil was not a religious garment to be worn only at worship and, and uh, no other time. The second problem was with the Lord's Supper there in verses 17 through 34. The Lord's Supper, one of the most cherished parts of our worship on the Lord's Day that Jesus instituted on the night of his death. And I won't go and preach a sermon on the Lord's Supper here other than what Paul has left us, but it is one that is precious for it reminds us of the cost of our freedom 
the cost of our sacrifice, or the cost of our uh, salvation, rather. It is a precious time. It is a time which sometimes brings tears to our eyes when we think of how much Christ suffered for us. And it should have been us on the cross, but we weren't worthy. Only Jesus Christ was worthy. And as we participate in that supper, it should be done with love. It should be done with remembrance. It should be done with patience and grace for each other. But it wasn't being done that way here. In fact, we have a lot of division uh, and actions that made it disgraceful. Their abuse consisted of two things. First, it was joined with a common meal. They were eating this meal, drinking this cup, eating bread, and drinking the fruit of the vine. But they turned it into a common meal, which many have uh, taken as being something that was okay to do, uh, to come and have a meal uh, in the Lord's house. The second thing is they were segregated among the lines of uh, social position. The rich were over here and the poor were over here and the rich were having a good meal and they had caviar and toast points and uh, pate and foie gras. And the poor people were over here and they were having grain and, and a little water and they were not united. They were not loving. They were not graceful to one another. And they were so bad that Paul began by making a comment in verse 17 and said, I can't even praise you for anything. Remember how he started off this, this chapter? He was praising them for some of the things they were doing good. I can't even do that here. And so their assembly and observing the Lord's Supper in the way they did actually made their assembly and matters worse. These divisions in the church of Corinth uh, had already been reported to them. But now as he's understanding about their partaking of the Lord's Supper, this has to do the bottom line with their moral character, the way their hearts beat towards each other and towards Christ. In verse 19, uh, there in chapter 11, Paul said, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And so he could uh, see by their fruits who was observing the Lord's Supper properly. But for the most part, none of them were. Their coming together wasn't for the right purpose to observe the Lord's Supper, to remember the Savior, to remember his anguish, to remember his love, and grace, but it was just to eat a meal in verse 20. And so, as we said, uh, there was a division between uh, the haves and the have-nots, and the haves were getting drunk, and the have-nots were uh, hungry there in verse 21. And so, rather than telling the uh, brethren there at Corinth, we'll just share with one another, he said, don't eat at all. Don't you have homes to eat in? Verse 22 and, and 34. That's where you need to eat. And you need to either eat before you come to service or eat afterwards. Because this conduct, this eating a common meal and withholding from each other and not 
sharing in love and mercy and grace and unity. It shows contempt for the Lord's church. And I think it even caused embarrassment to the poor. Verse 22, there was nothing worthy that Paul could say about them. Nothing. And then Paul reminded the Corinthians that the Lord's Supper and how it was to be observed came to him through divine revelation on that road to Damascus. The Lord instituted it on the night he was betrayed. It was instituted during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so there's no question that the cup was not alcoholic. It had to be unleavened. That the bread had to be without yeast, flat bread, no leaven. But they were just eating what they chose. The disciples on that night were commanded to take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Verse 24. And he took the, paso, uh, took the cup after the supper, and he commanded them uh, to drink it in remembrance of me, for you do proclaim uh, my death until he, until he comes again. And we need to be careful about partaking of the Lord's Supper. Yes, Christ is there, and we're all there before God. We're partaking this supper, and we should examine ourselves as we partake. Now, some people say, well, we need to uh, concentrate on how worthy we are. We're not worthy. None of us are worthy. But Christ made us worthy to receive salvation through his blood if we have faith, obedient, working faith, and continue on until the end. But what uh, taking the Lord's Supper unworthily means is we're not focused on what that supper means. Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. Are we remembering Christ? Are we remembering what uh, it took to free us from sin and from the second death if we remain faithful and true to God? None of us uh, are like Christ. And that comes out in Revelation, the fifth chapter, as the scroll uh, needed to be unrolled and unlocked, and only one could do it, Jesus Christ. So partaking of it worthily means we are following Christ's instructions, his commandment that when we drink the cup, we partake of the bread, we're doing it in remembrance of Jesus, not divided like they were at, at Corinth. Therefore, they were drinking, as Paul says in verse 29, damnation to their souls. It's the manner in which they were participating, that many were weak and sickly and some were dead. And I've heard some people talk about this as if it's actual physical uh, weakness and death, that God uh, sent plagues on those who don't drink worthily. No, what he's saying is when you divide the congregation, when you separate yourself, when there's no unity, when there's no love, and you continue to do that, you're causing people to become weak in the faith. You're causing them to become sick. And you're causing some of them, in some cases, uh, maybe some of the poor who weren't getting uh, any of the food, to simply die on the vine. 
And so he tells the Corinthians, look at yourself. We might say, consider your ways and change your conduct and wait for one another, he says. Wait for one another. When you get there early, love each other so that you don't start off without waiting for people to arrive to partake of the supper. Partake of it as one body with no division, with plenty of love, with plenty of grace and mercy for each other. It's to be taken of, partaken of as one body, for it is this one body who unites with Christ, the one body, before God. And abandon this common meal. Eat at home. Eat before you come. Eat afterwards, but don't eat in place of the Lord's Supper. I hope the lesson has been beneficial uh, to you. We need to remember that there should be no division in our church. The segregation uh, along the lines of the social position, this idea that I've been a Christian longer than someone, the idea that I'm rich so I can do more than those who are poor and don't have money to do anything. Those ideas kill a church. They kill Christians. They destroy those who would be Christians. What we're looking at here is a church gone terribly, terribly wrong. And it's a wonder as I read these passages, how did they ever remain together? How did they ever uh, offer anything uh, that Paul could commend them on? But there were some things that they were doing that were well. There were some things that needed to be straightened out. And there was conduct which was far uh, more carnal than it was Christian. And Paul, uh, in these next couple of chapters, as well as this one, is going to hold no punches uh, to their behavior and their need to, uh, I guess we could say, clean up their act. I appreciate you listening today. It's been maybe for some a difficult uh, chapter to understand, and I'm here to help you. There are other brethren who would be also glad to help you understand these matters. If you wear a veil, let me say this. I don't hold anything against you nor condemn you. And if you don't wear a veil, I don't hold anything against you, nor do I condemn you. Uh, understand why you're wearing it. Are you showing submission to God? Are you wearing it as a tradition because maybe your forefathers uh, or ancestors, your mother or grandmother wore those uh, to services? Are you showing honor uh, to God? I'll leave that to you. Uh, but I do want you to understand uh, what Paul was saying here in this chapter. It was simply a tradition here at Corinth. It was not divine law. But yet, as the other things Paul talked about, uh, I will not uh, speak a word against you. Uh, after all, God is looking for your heart, and God wants that to be pure. God wants that to be submissive. God wants that to be true. I love every one of you who listen to these, who share them, 
and to uh, review them with others and use them for classes. Uh, the PowerPoint slides are also provided here if you need those for every class that we've had so far. You can go back and review those. Uh, I hope to see you next week. I hope God will give me that time to uh, teach his word. May God bless each of you until then. So bye-bye.